Welcome to another episode of Return on Character Podcast with Dan Cooper, me, your host, founder and CEO of Rock Investments, where we allocate capital into the public markets based on the character of the public company CEOs. Um, I'm honored to have with us today a dear friend, um, a mentor, someone that I look up to uh, more than most in the world uh, that I've had the privilege of knowing. Um, Tom is kind of one of my my heroes. He's also been kind enough to be uh, a board member to Rock Investments. But Tom Darden with us today. Um, please say hello, Tom. Dan, great to see you. It's so wonderful to have you that, that I get to have you all to myself, oh, that, I get to, I, that I get to it's, it's to my abuse benefit. you. <laughs> yeah, I get to abuse you for the things I want to know more and, and honestly, uh, the things that I know that you are that uh, I think are really genuinely important to share with the world. And so um, thanks for, for coming on. Uh, thanks for giving us your time. Um, as I said, Tom is a, you know, actually I have to say, Tom was what the reason we launched uh, Return on Character. Yeah, I'm sure that's investments. <laughs> no, I, it is because we are having a conversation, and it's you said, "Geez, that's yeah. something. That's something I'd be interested in being a part of." And it was the it was the seed that needed to be planted to be able to grow the tree that we we now get to look at and 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 uh, and benefit from. So, oh, it warms my heart. Um, I mean, uh, notwithstanding the fact I'm, I, I don't necessarily believe it, but anyway, you're very kind to say that. And uh, anyway, any little thing true, I can Tom. do to cheer you on or support you, uh, I want to do. Tom, can you, Tom is the CEO and founder of a $2.5 billion uh, fund called Cherokee. And Cherokee is very unique in itself, but I was hoping what you could do, do for us to start off is how did Cherokee come to be in other words uh it grew to be something really interesting and it morphed over time but how did you how take us back to your early days when you first started and and how you ended up with Cherokee well I was uh working at Bain and Company and I had an opportunity to buy some brick manufacturing businesses and I had a a plan this was at a time when energy costs were very high and I had a plan to convert them to using alternative energy, specifically in that case, uh, biomass. It was not an original idea. Other people were doing it. In fact, people had done it since the beginning of time, you know, burning wood or, you know, burning later on tires. I mean, almost anything in order to heat up the clay that would melt into, uh, into the shape of a brick. So, you know, there were more advanced ways of doing it. And I was an environmental guy from an education standpoint and sort of in terms of what I was interested in. And I knew that EPA was beginning to regulate uh, wood waste or sawdust. Uh, and the sawmills, which were prevalent in our area, were having to dump it in landfills. And so that was stupid from a carbon standpoint, from a CO2 standpoint or methane. And I thought, well, it's, it's much better environmentally to burn it than it is to degrade it, to allow it to decompose into methane. And, uh, 
And meanwhile, natural gas costs a lot. So there's a great arbitrage opportunity to convert these manufacturing plants. So I started doing that and the plants Gordon were- Chong, how old were you in, when you kind of first I was, kind of realized I was that this conversion- well, you're well, wait a minute. I mean, I was thinking about this when I was in, in graduate school or in, in university graduate school. You know, this is, this uh -huh. is kind of part of my, uh, I mean, the, 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 I was obsessed with this subject, broadly speaking, from from a very, very young age, 20 or maybe younger, and was obsessed with environmental issues and alternative energy and finding environmentally better ways of, of making things, doing things since I was in middle school. I'm not kidding. I mean, it just was something I came to be really interested in, almost from an alchemy standpoint or from a you know, waste equals food. I mean, the idea that waste right. is not, waste is only something that's in the wrong place. Like, there's no form of waste <laughs> that is useless. Yeah. It, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just in the wrong place or in the wrong concentration. And so if you could gather it's together that waste, you could, you could, uh, becomes an ingredient. It becomes a food. It becomes, you know, something that's right. positive. And of course it is food for bacteria and bacteria are one of the great ways of converting this stuff. And so that was a big focus of mine as well. So you're, so you were at Bain and Company, and then you see this opportunity with the brick companies. Yeah. What was it scary when you decided to jump from Bain and try to do this? Well, it never dawned on me, or I, I did. It, you know, it, it didn't bother me in the least. Or I wasn't the least bit worried about that. But it was. I think it's an attribute of of youth. And I had a law degree. I could get a job working as a. You know, it, it, or I'd go back to Bain or whatever. It was not. I didn't feel like it was really desperate. I felt like I had a lot of uh, capital in effect in, in the form of of a, a work track record and a educational track record. Meaning, I didn't have any money, but I had you know an asset there which was was downside protection. So I really sort of had nothing to lose. Was the way I saw it. It was frightening in terms of a responsibility standpoint. I was very worried about that, and uh, you know I. I would have been, well, the whole thing was probably going to blow up anyway. I mean, the, the company was in a terrible, these companies, I bought four simultaneously, but they were in terrible shape. And, and you know, what their future was, was uncertain. Three of them were in terrible shape. And so I don't know, it was kind of like a, you know, it, it was a, it was a crashing, you know, a crashing plane and, you know, well, you might as well jump in and try to, you know, see if you could pull it out. Pull, pull. Pull it out yeah, of the bag. So anyway, yeah. that was uh, not too much to lose. So you're, you're a 28 year old kid that gets four brick companies. Have you ever, had you ever led an organization before? Had you ever led people before? No, I, mean, I had what no, was that like? no experience. I had been to, I'd been to law school. I worked in Korea for a year for uh, the Korea Institute of Science and Technology doing kind of uh, urban environmental planning work, uh, came back, went to law school and then I went to Bain and, you know, Bain is, it was such a great experience. I woke up every day thinking I was the luckiest person on the planet to, that they gave me a job coming out of law school, particularly with, you know, no relevant track in the background. I didn't major in business. I majored in anthropology and I had a master's not, not completed, but part of a master's in city planning, urban planning, environmental planning. So, you know, I was woefully uh, under-equipped at Bain. They they took a chance on me and gave me a job. I was so eternally, I am eternally grateful. Um, but, but you know, you work at those consulting firms, you don't get a, you don't get a management, you know, expertise or skills. I mean, you're just, you're just a doer. You're, you're doing work. So, no, I was woefully under-equipped in that regard. Um, but, you know, 
Well, well, tell, so tell, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, what was it like? I mean, how well, I went you, in very... You, first of all, a crisis situation is always a difficult time to manage. You have to make tough decisions. Oh, it's easy. You it's know? easy. It's much easier it's easy. to manage in a crisis. You know, okay. because every decision is, uh, you know that you cannot keep doing what you're doing. And so uh, it's kind of like the the base cases in any change you make would, would make it better. I understand that's not necessarily the case. It could be that some changes would make it worse, but, but you, you don't have the, the burden of the stasis, you know, of the, of the status quo. That's a real burden for companies. I think systematically they're, they, they, things are going okay, you know, or, or it's the frog in the pot where it's getting a little warmer, but you know, people, it, it's hard to jump, man, when it's, when the wheels are falling off or the wings are falling off or whatever, it's, uh, it's easy to make decisions. So in that sense, it was really great. And I'm sure that we made wrong decisions, but almost everything, I mean, just doing anything would, would make it better. I went into it very humble, uh, from a personal standpoint, you know, I, I knew what I didn't know. And I was very honest about that with people. And I said, basically, I'm coming here from a consulting firm. I have one plan, one idea, which is we're going to convert these plants to using sawdust and the economics of that are compelling. And people were on board with that, broadly speaking. But, but in terms of the overall management of the business, or especially areas of the business like, like sales, sales and marketing, or accounting and finance, I didn't know, you know, that, they, they were just... I was actually very interested in accounting and finance, but, but it was not, I just said, whatever you're doing, just keep doing good luck or, you know, let me know or anything I can do to be helpful. Let me know. But that's, I'm going to be in those manufacturing plants with a, you know, cutting torch in my hand, or, you know, I'm going to be working on trying to figure out how to make this conversion and how to implement that, uh, and how to fund that. And that's really what we have to do. So in that sense, it was, it was easy. So I just walked around, I spent time. Uh, a few days in every department in the manufacturing plants, just talking to people. And I think it came to be pretty clear to them that I was open-minded and that I didn't, I wasn't coming in with a bunch of opinions. Um, I was coming in asking questions and trying to help. And so people really jumped in and were, were very, very, uh, it, it was just a great kind of a culture atmosphere of people just trying to be helpful, you know, contributing ideas and, and, uh, helping us solve problems. Was there, were there any ideas that kind of stands out that you received from, from the folks in the, in the plant that kind of blew your, blew your mind that didn't, hadn't happened yet, but. There's one know, that really stands out to... because it was, it was, it was interestingly mundane and, uh, but, but the whole, the whole setting of it, I mean, just kind of the way it came about and the way, the way this person thought about it, uh, we were. I would meet with different groups with, with each kind of department of the, of the big plants. And we, we had a thousand employees day one, or maybe 800 employees day one. And so it was a big, big operation. And I would have meetings of, of a team in, in, uh, different areas of the plant. And one of them pertained uh -huh. to, a, a the, the part where you process the clay. So you bring in clay, uh, and it's kind of in the form of big rocks for the most part, you have to grind those rocks up and, and then screen it and get it down to the right size and right characteristics. And then you store it so you have some backup in case the plant, in case there's a, a equipment malfunction or something. And and so you, you have these giant buildings. I mean, a building that's, that's half as long as a football field, let's say, filled with, with clay. 
and conveyor belts and equipment. And so this guy was there in a meeting and he said, well, I've got an idea. I've always wondered why we, his job was to run a front end loader, giant, you know, piece of Caterpillar equipment, um, cost a quarter million dollars and scoop up clay out of this big pile. There was a conveyor belt was dropping the clay from where it was processed in this pile in this giant building and put it in a, a hopper or a bin right over, over there. And these distances were not that far. Um, and, and he said, I don't understand why we do that. Like, why does he do what he does? Right. He said, uh, <laughs> why don't we just extend the conveyor belt a little bit? So the clay drops into the hopper instead of using a $250,000 piece of equipment and himself to pick it up and move it into the hopper. And it was just this, you know, the, the simplicity the obviousness, but also the selflessness of this guy sort of saying, um, I don't know that I can even say having the trust that he wouldn't be fired as a function of that. Well, why would he have the trust? He had no, you know, he didn't know any, you know, it's all new and changing. And this guy did it. I just saw what an incredible, I don't know, like statement of character, if you will. It's coincidentally, we, we were, we were trying to figure out how to pay for a front end loader just like that that we needed elsewhere in the operation and so all of a sudden it freed up this you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars that for darn sure we didn't have anyway it's just this incredibly moving kind of emotionally moving thing where this guy stuck his neck out for the benefit of this larger organization uh, but also the wonderful simplicity of, of you know just a simple idea and the effect that it could have we we tend to think that that things are so complex and yet often something really, really small can make such a big difference. Yeah. So did it work? Yeah, it worked. It worked. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> we were, the natural gas was 40% of the cost of making a brick. And once we converted the sawdust, the, the total energy cost was 10% of the cost of making a brick and the cost was lower, so it was probably eight or nine percent compared to the forty. So you know, you pick up thirty percentage points in your in your cost or in your margin. That that was a hundred percent of the margin, by the way, because we had no margin before. These companies were losing three million dollars a year on about twenty five million in revenues, and so you know, it was just a, a sinking ship. And that turned it around and it became successful. We had a the, you asked how we got started at well, at least at Cherokee as it evolved into, we had contamination at all of these plants. These plants were 75 years old or older. And we had, uh, at one point, we owned over 100 underground storage tanks at various places at the different plants. And they all were leaking fundamentally. And EPA was regulating that. And we didn't have the money to clean it up. And I knew about bacteria cleaning up contamination or, you know, consuming uh, different types of, of uh almost anything really bacteria will consume almost anything and i thought well maybe we could use bacteria and i got some professors at virginia tech and we developed bacteria for clean up contaminated soil and we used it to clean up our own contaminated soil but then you know it was pretty obvious that that could be there could be other people interested in that and so that turned into a business of growing and selling bacteria to other people doing bioremediation and then that turned into a business of us taking in contaminated dirt into warehouses that we would locate in different places around the country or to sites that we had already in the brick operation and treating it with the bacteria, cleaning it up, uh, and, uh, 
the bacteria would consume the petroleum uh, contamination in the soil. And so from there, it was, it was an easy shot to get into the business of buying contaminated land. We could buy contaminated land, use our background knowledge, insurance, you know, kind of ideas about risk management to buy contaminated land. And that turned into a big business. And that's what we raised the funds for the, the two plus billion dollars that you mentioned that we raised over about a 25 year period. And, uh, we have just sold the last sites that we at last contaminated property that we owned. We wanted to exit before, uh, you know, what, what was obviously going to be a recession. I suspect we've entered into that recession, but anyway, so we did, we sold the last of the property that was in our, in our private equity investment funds, uh, separately, uh-huh. I've been buying land around Raleigh, outside Raleigh, some of which is brownfield sites for a long time. And, uh, and so at this point, the ongoing Cherokee land activity, uh, property activity is, is mostly focused around that. Tom, what was it like for you? I mean, what, what was the environment around the plant and how were you received and you well, know, whenever it was clear that things started to turn in the right direction. I mean, eventually it started to work. I mean, that must have been kind of a special experience. Yeah, it was the greatest, I mean, uh, it was the greatest work experience of my life. Sadly, you, you don't, you don't know what to value at what time, but cause it was teamwork and I'd always been an athlete in school and been on teams and I probably wasn't the most, you know, rah-rah kind of a guy and in a weird way I didn't really like sports all that much I just played them but um but but I think the 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 camaraderie of a group of people working together toward a common goal is so motivating so moving and you really really have that in a manufacturing plant I just think it's a special special place probably any manufacturing plant would be that way and so it's very much Mm -hmm. that way um it was uh you know I was uh I was always an outsider in a way because of my background and also the other stuff I worked on, you know, I was, I mean, I was having to deal with finance and other stuff. So, you know, I'd be in the plants for four hours and then leave and go off and do whatever else I had to do, uh, in, in the company. So yeah, you're never really part of the team in, in a way, but, but it was just, it was just such a special, wonderful time. And if I, if I knew now what I knew then, what I didn't know then, uh, if I knew then what I know now, then, uh, who knows, I, I probably would have tried to stay in that role, if you will, uh, on, on, as a, as a work career. Yeah. As opposed to like the I, world, a more cerebral world or a more financial world or, you know, that stuff by comparison is, is quite, you know, m- much less meaningful. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that be, I think is really interesting about you and your story is how you approached becoming wealthy um, and how you reacted to that. You know, could you, would you mind sharing a little bit of that? What, Mostly what with that astonishment. Like? <laughs> how did, how did you, how did you develop your philosophy around, um, on how to handle that? In some and ways, why was it, in some ways, yeah. like being in the, in the brick plants, you know, I always felt like a stranger to it. And, and I definitely felt like a stranger to the world of being rich. I had, I had a deep aversion to, to wealth from childhood. It's a, it's a strange why? thing. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. 
So I, I grew up in, I had the most privileged upbringing of anyone I know. I mean, I just had a completely privileged uh, childhood. My mom was a small town school teacher. Um, she didn't work when, when I was young, but, but she had been a teacher before, and then she later went back to work. Tom? Your microphone's hitting your collar there a little bit, so if you could just keep it Hold forward. It Is that better? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, yeah, my mom was a uh, was a small town school teacher. She uh, didn't work when we were young, but she she worked before that, and then later she went back to work as a teacher. And my dad was a small town lawyer. He actually was in business before, but then when I was in high school, he quit work and he went to law school at UNC at, at Chapel Hill. So the family moved to to Chapel Hill. And, uh, and so then he became a small town lawyer and I'd say in an average year, my mother probably made more money as a public school teacher in a tiny county in, in Eastern North Carolina than my father made as a lawyer. In other words, these people were not well to do. Um, and so when I say I had a privileged upbringing, it was by no means because of, of wealth. Uh, and, and, and they didn't have any feelings one way or another about wealth. I mean, I don't think they cared. I mean, they weren't, yeah. they weren't averse to it. They weren't, you know, communists, let's say I was a communist as a kid, but, but I just, I saw the trappings of wealth and I found it to be so, uh, offensive or annoying or something. There was a guy who lived in the town, one town that we lived in as a kid. I moved a lot when I was a kid as my dad would, would, he would, would move with his job. And we lived in a place and somebody was a big supporter of UNC, the, the local university in North Carolina. And, and the color of the school is, is baby blue. Okay. It's that, that's the school color. They, they deem it Carolina blue, but in any event, he, he bought a, a new Rolls Royce and he, and of course somebody had a Rolls Royce in High Point, North Carolina. It was just ridiculous. He bought a Rolls Royce and he painted it baby blue. He painted his Rolls Royce Carolina blue, and he would he would drive it to the football games and park it in the parking lot. And you know, it was this sort of plumage, you know, like wearing the vestiges of 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 of, of wealth vestiges. Anyway, what, kind of demonstrating his, and I just found it so it just it just drove me crazy to see that kind of behavior. And I said, as a young person, I said, that will never be me. I, I cannot do that. I mean, it just drive me. It, it, it's worse than worse than distasteful to me it kind of crossed a, a line in, into wrong and i can't really i can't really define that you know why why i say that but i really had a stronger version to it so by the same token you know i had this you know great background or you know education or i could i knew i could kind of do what i wanted to do and i wasn't worried about money i wasn't worried about whether i'd have enough to you know feed my family um so when i ended up um having you know what what by today's standards would be a very small amount of money but but just a ridiculous amount to me meant i really would not have needed to work again in my life and i was 30 or something um i i it, it was i was like an anthropologist relative to that i was an observer of this situation you know like this is really strange um i concealed it completely I, and no one knew um and i i, I I didn't change my behavior. I did three stupid things. I allowed myself three stupid things. Um, one was not stupid, but well, two were not stupid. I <laughs> bought my wife the first new car that we had ever owned. Uh, and, uh, that was one. 
and the other is we were building a house. Was it a Rolls Royce? No, it was Royal, not. It was not. Okay, well, it, it was not. But it, <laughs> it, it did cost thirty thousand dollars, which is a lot of money. For another thirty thousand uh, dollars, we were in the process of building a house, and uh, we I added a wing onto it—a little, a one-bedroom, you know, little thing sticking off the side of it, so that we could have a a guest room in the house, you know, like a first-floor uh, guest room. Uh-huh. And that cost thirty thousand bucks to uh, to add to the to the house that was under construction. And I bought myself a briefcase, a leather briefcase that cost three hundred dollars. And uh, at that point, I, I said, "Okay, I'm done. I've I've had my you know midlife crisis or lost my mind." Uh, so anyway, I tried tried hard not to change kind of standard of living. I've complied with that to you know various failing degrees over the years. But in any event, I just didn't feel like it was mine. You know, I felt like it was. I felt like it belonged to society or, you know, it, I didn't feel a proprietary interest. I didn't feel like, certainly didn't feel like I deserved it or, you know, and I'm not saying I did not work hard. I just thought I'm a lucky person. And why did this happen? This, you know, this thing fell on my head. Um, so I had a, a real sense of kind of responsibility or stewardship responsibility. Like this is not mine. I need to, I need to use this for the benefit of society. And that led to, I was very focused on entrepreneurship and, and, you know, corporate startup culture and providing jobs. And so I just kind of made a vow, a promise to myself that I would only do that with any money that I had. And as a function of that, I've stayed out of public markets um, ever since. And, um, And when I say stayed out, I mean really, really, really stayed out. Uh, I don't have any stocks, bonds, mutual funds, any traded investments whatsoever, uh, except for rock, I must say, which is in my 401k. My 401k is my, my <laughs> one exception. And uh, and so I just said, you know, I want to be an active investor. I want to create jobs. I want to build technologies, build companies. And that's what I should do in my capital. And so that's what I've done for for the last hundred years, approximately. It's been interesting because I've completely missed the entire run-up in the stock market. You know, the stock market just exploded over that 30-year period. And uh, I've completely missed it and kind of waved at it over there like, oh, hey, good luck, guys. <laughs> but, 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 and I may have it wrong a little bit, but, but your, your philosophy of money in the bank, for example, as a point of security... Well, yeah, no, I'm. You know, uh, do you do you keep a big <laughs> giant chunk of money sitting in the bank so that you 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 know you're safe, or how do you look at it that way? I mean, can, yeah, no, I, I lead a, have, uh, I lead a, a, a an illiquid life to a degree that I've never met anyone ever in any context, except maybe a, a young startup entrepreneur that had no money. Period. I've never met anyone who was as illiquid or as illiquid as a percentage of anything, like whatever you want to measure it by, kind of the amount of liquidity versus the amount of deployed capital. So I think it's really important to stay deployed. If you think your capital makes a difference, then you should stay deployed. And you should stay deployed in something that makes a difference. And cash is is, is an example of what doesn't make a difference. So I think you need enough cash so that you're not gonna completely you know, run off the edge of the cliff but aside from that, I think it's irresponsible to hold a lot of cash. It would be astonishing if I had 5% of my 
assets in any form that I could get my hands on in six months. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, but, but people say they're illiquid because they got their money tied up in public stocks that they could sell in the next, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, but I don't want to sell it because, you know, for some reason like taxes or whatever, I'm talking about illiquidity, like does not exist. And uh, that's a, anyway, that's just sort of what I've chosen to do. Well, to me, but, but also that's, I mean, to me, that's interesting is that there'll be times when you're like, well, I can't make that investment because I don't have liquidity totally. for it right all now. The time. All the time. And, 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 and as I understand it, it's a function of a, a value set that kind of stems from what, it, what you spoke to earlier. And that is, look, it's not mine really. I mean, it's, it, it's mine. I'm, I'm, I guess I have some power over it, but at the end of the day, there's this felt obligation to use cash to try to move the needle in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. And and so that does not allow a lot of room for for decision making, you know, based on returns, right? It's a the decision. I mean, look, I think that I think that in order to be effective at at almost any service, product, idea, whatever. Well, it's anything would be best done through some type of a business structure because incentives are appropriately aligned, reasonably appropriately aligned. Uh, you, uh, you know, you can gather people together, you gather capital together, you can get resources to implement something. So I'm a huge fan of business. I think it's the right way to do things. Uh, and I th- and you can't stay in business unless you make a profit. So I'm by no means anti-profit. I think it's critically important. But I, I've always found it curious that people make investment decisions solely on the basis of return, uh, or even or even ninety percent on the basis of return. That, that that would be the determining factor. Everything else being equal, if everything else truly were equal, I could flip a or I, I could choose between A and B, and A made more money than B, I would choose A, no no question. But everything else is never equal, and and how often do you see a situation? Certainly, if you're in the direct investing world like I am. So I see deals all the time. Then constantly I'm seeing something that I think this really could be an important thing. And and typically at the level that I'm getting involved, which is very early, you don't have any idea what the profitability is going to be. But I do see people who say, no, I'm only going to invest in, you know, a certain type of medical, you know, new drug development because regulations are support that kind of thing. And the government will pay you a lot of money if you do it. And so I'm going to make the most profit by doing that. I'm just roll my eyes like, wow, what a it's just such a strange reason to, 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 you know, to run your life, if you will. But Tom, um, so how many how many businesses do you think you've invested in since your Cherokee liquidation days? So I, uh, I never kept track of it, and uh, I really kind of felt like it was almost inappropriate to keep track of it. it it's, it's the wrong term, but I felt like. I didn't want to be following that metric, you know, the, the metric of observing a portfolio, okay, which obviously that's what every investor does is observe a portfolio. But I felt like it wasn't why I was doing it. And so I was making the decision I was making individually. They, they, they stood on their own individually and kind of the performance of a portfolio over time was not my goal. Um, it seemed to me, and so I didn't keep track of it. By the way, I have a full-time accountant who does keep track of this stuff. And it's all written right. down, but I wouldn't prepare it as a, as kind of a portfolio analysis or do portfolio analysis on it or different sectors, you know, what sectors am I in and how are they doing? Um, so, uh, 
over time, people would ask me, you know, people that I interacted with who knew that this is what I was doing would say, how do you do that? Or what do you do? Or what is, how's it work? And I started thinking that I kind of owed it to, to the world or to others to figure this out and, and try to provide information to people who might want to do the same thing. Um, so I thought I need to gather the data together and, and I, between my accountant and a, a financial analyst that I hired to do this, pulled together a list. I thought it might've been 75 different, you know, companies or deals at that point. And as I pulled the database together, there were 211 and now about 50 of those I would discard because it was either me investing in a local venture fund. If somebody started a venture fund around here, my inclination is to give them a little bit of money to try to be helpful or be a team player. Hmm. And so there might be 10 or 15 of those that were either the first or follow on investments in local venture funds. Uh, and then some of those were real estate and, and I'm not counting that in that calculation. I'm not counting our funds or any of that activity. So, you know, it was, it was just, it ended up being about four or five deals a year over, you know, over 30 years or thereabouts. So, and, and I knew that I was pretty active, but I didn't know what the numbers were at any given time. There are 40 or 50 of those that are, that are alive. I mean, that, that's where the portfolio that I keep an eye on, uh, of these, uh, highly illiquid, you know, early stage deals. Well, mostly environmental energy, alternative energy environment would be the, by far the leading, you know, that, that would be 80% of them and about 50 of them I started. Okay. So I had the idea, uh, and either 50 of yeah, them, a big percentage you started, yeah, had the idea and, uh, I've got patents associated with smart grid, uh, operation of the electric grid, uh, for example, you know, things that, that I was involved in figuring out and, and all the bacteria stuff and the pollution cleanup businesses. But, but a, a lot of them, you know, I'll have the idea and I'll find somebody or, 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 you know, find somebody else who has the idea or whatever and say, Hey, come in and I'll fund this thing. Let's, let's build something out of this. Right. Well, one of those companies that you invested in was, um, rock investments, which allowed us to launch return on character ETF, the first of its kind. That was the best one. What? Well, yeah, right. Why, why were you interested in, in investing in a company that tries to source character in the marketplace? What, what pulled you in to, to this? And what, what do you think, uh, you know, how do you think about it as it relates to its, its opportunity to contribute, you know, in the broader world. Sure, sure. If you, if you view capitalism or business as being a form of stewardship, you know, you think about society, I mean, society's capital is, is so critically important to how the society evolves and the decisions being made by the people who control society's capital are so critical to how our society evolves. I mean, how our society evolves at a sociological level, you know, as well as at a economic level, as well as at a technological level. Uh, I'm really, uh, you know, the sociological side of that is really important. In other words, what are the behavioral attributes that get promoted by way of example, uh, in via corporate America, which is most of America in terms of work, right? I mean, how many people work for a company versus don't work for a company in America? I don't know those numbers, but it's gotta be the majority. So that's a huge cultural thing, kind of, you know, like a super tanker moving through, through the water, having an effect and what are the values of the people who were, 
who are managing that is just so critically important. And particularly in America right now, because we've had a 20-year period, 30-year period, where the values of the people managing so much that, that capital have been downright sociopathic. I mean, worse than zero. These were not people without values. These were people with who, who affirmatively, knowingly chose to accept very bad outcomes, very, you know, socially very bad outcomes, knew it was happening. So it's the equivalent of tobacco companies, but, or take tobacco companies. I grew up in North Carolina much of my life and, and the tobacco companies have been a, you know, key economic drivers and they were, they were around like, you know, they were around places I live, maybe a tobacco plant or something, or people working for these companies. And of course, going to school like UNC, you would meet people whose families have been in the tobacco industry. I wouldn't speak to them. I just thought, how could you do that? My parents had some friends that were in the tobacco business and it just, I, I thought, how can, anyway, don't get me started, but I just thought you have a product that's killing people, it's destroying part of society and, and you're doing it because you're making money. Like, well, let's have a conversation about this. So I wasn't very popular in, uh, at, uh, you know, the average cocktail party, I guess. But, but anyway, so, so now I'll take that forward. It's worse now. It's worse. And so we allowed that to happen. We, meaning America, you, you have a group of people who are devoid of values other than making money and pursuing their technology, whatever their technology is, their math or whatever. Uh, how could we have allowed that to happen? It just, it just drives me crazy. So to see, so what's going to fight, what will defeat that? It can't be some regulatory regimen. The regulators are always kind of running along behind that train. It's, it's the concept of character, that character really does matter. So I was deeply taken, deeply moved, deeply, you know, uh, supportive or impressed by, by what you were talking about, the work you did early on when you were part of, you and Joe Ritchie were, you know, the people, I'm not saying nobody else ever thought of it, but I'm saying, you know, you guys were building out the infrastructure to do this, the intellectual or analytical infrastructure to do this, to figure out. You know, how do you measure character and what's the effect of character and what is the correlation to returns? And it just makes good intuitive sense that businesses that had good character would perform better. I'm not saying all the time, you know, like if somebody came out with some destructive widget or something, you can make a lot of money for yeah. a while. Uh, but, but over a long period of time, it seems to me that character will prevail. So these are the reasons that I was so, so supportive. I think the social impact that you can have is enormous. Yeah. Well, you've been, you've been a, a cornerstone, Tom. A cornerstone. Uh, I'm a pebble. I'm a, yeah. I'm a well, no, not know, even a brick. Are, I'm a, a you're, little rock you're, in, you're, in the you're mortar. Found, uh, so. Your foundation piece. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the things I love about you the most is that you're a thinker and you think about things and, you know, I would love to, to, to be able to hear what you're thinking about now, what you're concerned about, what are the things that you are applying yourself today to try to, you know, move the needle in the right direction. I mean, you're always been doing that. Uh, but, but what do you, what are your, what, what are some things that you're doing today that, that your, your, or, or thoughts that you may have on society or, environment specifically sure, sure. you've been a big advocate of, of of the environment 
what's Tom doing today? I mean, I think this is post Cherokee. Cherokee's somewhat closed up for now. Uh, you've uh, and you're well, kind of to your next season. Yeah, the, the, the funds, funds yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. one of the great things about this is uh, is not to prepare in advance. Okay, I actually think it's a really it's a, it's a really great thing uh, because um, you know it's it's of the moment. Let's say and. Um, you know, Dan, that I've been working on fusion energy for the last decade. I, I organized this initiative to bring together capital to pursue alternative methods of triggering a fusion reaction, alternative besides enormous temperature and pressure, uh -huh. and began doing this because of evidence that this might occur or does occur, and but it was not replicable and trying to figure out, well, why is it not replicable or are people wrong with their measurements? Can we prove that it doesn't work or can we find that it does work one or the other and so i've spent 10 years and you know an enormous amount of time and money working on that um increasingly by the way i believe that fusion will not be a productive source of energy of course the news is filled with announcements of the, the big fusion initiatives the ones that do use temperature and pressure and and i'm you know i cheer i cheer them on and i know a number of those people and I hope that they're successful on the one hand. On the other hand, I cannot understand the economics of any of that uh, relative to other alternatives that are pretty good. And I'm including like Fair solar enough. plus storage. Uh, I was involved in developing a solar park a dozen years ago, and I'm getting ready to redevelop it, re, uh, uh, repower it, basically replace all the panels and, and repower it after 12 years. And we will, the, the new design with new panels and new equipment, will put out six times as much energy in the same land area as one 12 years ago. <laughs> now, this is probably an extreme example, but you know, call it four times on average, probably efficiency improvement over a dozen years. Meanwhile, storage is getting cheaper and more available. I'm not talking about lithium. You don't need lithium for grid storage. You could use all kinds of other uh, storage systems. So storage plus systems. solar, I think it's gonna be cheaper than fusion could ever be. Uh, and meanwhile, what about fission? We've got great fission reactor opportunities. So the new reactors being built. Society has a deep aversion to anything nuclear. I had a deep aversion to things nuclear. That's why I got so involved in environmental stuff. When I was in middle school, I was just passionately terrified of nuclear energy. Um, I turned out to be wrong. I mean, just wrong. This is like there is no debate. The safety of nuclear energy over time. Granted, there is a risk. Uh, but even the worst things that have happened in nuclear energy have been yeah. trivial compared to the daily things that happen associated with coal or natural gas building explosions that happen all the time, like that that plant in Pennsylvania just last week. Uh, so anyway, I, I think fusion I'm very interested in. It's all in the press. They're making progress. Uh, my prediction is it will not be a useful source of energy for anything in kind of normal life, maybe outer space or something. Uh, then the other thing mm -hmm. that I followed, because we work with these fusion scientists, uh, we had we had over 100, we, we funded over 100 fusion scientists total associated with this endeavor. I've gotten to know some of these people very well and have learned a lot about the math and the physics involved in their work. And that's all kind of close to quantum computing and and the the you know of course that ties into chat gpt and all its variants so so ai systems uh i mean it doesn't directly tie in but it's kind of adjacent to it of course quantum ai is going to be that's the big threat or big risk 
um, you know, just how we deal with complicated AI systems and, you know, when, when people concede that, in fact, the machines are going to be able to think, you know, for a long time, people say, yeah, I know, but they'll never cross over that line of being able to, like, form an independent thought. I don't know what an independent thought is, frankly. And I think that the distinction is one that isn't going to make any difference. You're going to have computers making decisions based on something. And of course, no one's going to know what that is. No one knows how the algorithms work inside these AI systems. I'm telling you, the inventors. How does, char- how does character, behavior, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion factor into the AI world? Do you well, have how about thoughts? responsibility? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. And, and I mean, integrity... I mean, it's a bit of an odd definition of the world, but of the word, but, you know, kind of knowing what you're doing, like, like, you know, to, to, to create something that can be, that you don't know its attributes. I mean, literally you don't know its attributes because it's self-evolving over time. You know, is, is there, can there be integrity in doing that if you are unable to constrain it and by the whole structure of the internet these days, you're not able to constrain it kind of the minute you release it. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's such a dilemma. I, I am sympathetic to the fact that it's going to happen. Like that genie is kind of out of the bottle. And if you're in a world where sure. genies are being released from bottles um, and, you know, they're being used to genetically modify babies in China. Uh, just one second. Sorry about that. I lost my camera for a minute. You know, if, 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 if you have, you know, some AI system and it's being used to genetically modify babies, uh, in, in China, I'm mixing metaphors here. They did genetically modify babies in China. I'm not saying they use these AI systems to do that with, but, but that's, what's going to start happening. And if, if you're seeing that happen in the world and you can make an AI that was better, that had character built into it somehow, you know? And people say, well, we're going to do that. It's like, yeah, we're going to do that later. We'll figure that out. But is there, you know, is there some way that you could build, you know, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, forgiveness. compassion uh, into into an AI system? I don't know. But, man, we got to uh, do it. Because yeah, those things are going to be running the show, I'm just telling you. Yeah. So, Tom, it's been such an honor to be with you. I love hanging out with you because I always learn a ton, and I and and you rub off on me all the time in the right direction. So I'm I'm grateful. Well, and, it's uh, a, I really appreciate who you are. A, and thanks for coming on our show. Thank you. It's an honor, and I really appreciate it. And I'm inspired by the work you're doing, and uh, it it affects what I do on a regular basis. So anyway, bless you.